This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Oh boy. Oh boy, it looks good, Lonnie. Yeah, we got a roll program. Somebody must be leaving the arm. Building shaking. We're getting that buffeting we've become used to. What a moment. Man on the way to the moon. Of the International Arrivals Building, Kennedy Airport, with a big display board there. They Velocity down now to 1,200 feet per second. You're looking right Disneyland down. in California. That's that high We're gate. We're now in the approach phase. Everything looking good. Is there inside now the high gate? 5,200 feet. 5,200 feet, less than a mile from the moon's surface. Manual attitude control is good. Roger, copy. Altitude That was a great movie. Uh, well, that was the that was the trailer. That was the trailer, a two minute a two minute trailer of a of a thirty thirty billion US dollar movie. Isn't that right, Randy Walsh? <laughs> That's very interesting footage. Thank you for that. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but I'm laughing at the topic because I never thought I'd be having this conversation and actually largely agreeing with it. Why? Why? Yeah. Why am I agreeing with it? 
it's 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 interesting everybody has that moment i know for myself that moment came maybe i think it was about 20 years ago and i mean like you and and like everyone else or like most people that you you know in terms of talking with this subject to you you know i believed in it i I actually remember watching it when i was in school we we all were held uh, we were herded down to the gym we were watching this little black and white tv in the corner i mean i couldn't see anything but it was the the moment it was the apollo 11 launch and it was i think it was at nine o'clock in the morning and we we didn't fully understand what was going on we were too young but we knew that there was something significant going on so it's just kind of interesting to be a part of it so i grew up believing in it it started with pretty much the cold war so there was obviously a very big political drive here yeah i I, and i mean it probably goes back a little further than that um probably pre uh, and i wrote about this actually in my second book um when in terms and i mentioned this in the first book but i elaborate more in the second book in terms of operation paperclip and all the scientists the nazi scientists that were recruited from germany um by the uh the united states um after world war ii and interestingly enough half of those scientists were recruited uh, by the then Soviet Union um, for their respective space programs. So that's kind of really the the beginning of the uh, race in the Cold War, which I realized that was just, it was, it, to me, it was, a, it was a psyops. And I have many reasons for seeing that. But before I get into that, I just want to talk about my moment um, mm, mm. when it happened for me. And I mentioned this earlier about 20 years ago. I just happened to come in one day. I never thought... I. I was always an enthusiastic. Uh, um, I was always enthusiastic about the space program because of my connection to aviation. But um, I happened to come in 20 years ago from work, turned on just a documentary, and, and I wasn't paying much attention to it. It was about the Apollo missions, and I heard one of the astronauts talking about they had to uh, maneuver the spaceship, the Apollo spaceship, to slingshot around the moon. Now, what that means is is that they were going to use the gravity of the moon to assist it to get back to earth i knew right away they were talking about apollo 13 for your listeners that are not familiar um apollo 13 supposedly had an accident on the way to the moon and it disabled the main propulsion systems so they uh, at that point they were docked to they were connected to the lunar module a smaller ship that was supposed to land on the moon so what they had decided to do was is to continue on um, as opposed to turning on and coming back, because that would have expended a lot of power and a lot of fuel, a lot of propellant. So they were going to continue on their journey and use the moon's gravity to slingshot around, to propel them back to Earth, and then they would use the lunar module's engine to uh, make sure that they were on course. So when um, they were talking about this, the commander, um, um, I realized it was the commander, Jim Lovell, of Apollo 13, was talking about, now remember, this really knocked out their their uh, computer systems in the main ship, if I can put it that way. So they were basically using manual to get that ship um, around the moon using the slingshot, the gravity effect around the moon back to Earth. So I remember I remember Jim Lovell saying, Commander Jim Lovell saying, well, um, I was talking to my fellow colleague here, and I said, no matter what you do, when I fire the engines, you keep the Earth wind in a grid pattern on the window and it's not a window i'll explain that in a minute and that's when my moment happened because i knew enough back then because being a pilot about uh in terms of navigation and i was thinking whoa whoa, hold on a minute here you're using visual references 
um, to navigate 240,000 miles back to Earth. Yeah. And you're actually basically hand flying the craft to do it. And I knew that something was seriously wrong with this whole narrative because um, for anyone who knows about navigation, um, if you're 0.1 degree off course, 240,000 miles away, that's going to put you thousands of miles off course. And they didn't have the propellant yeah. to continue to firing the engines and turns to firing the engines to keep them on course. So I just, I just thought at that point it was a precarious way of navigating. Um, it's a precarious way of navigating at any time on Earth. I mean, they used the form of celestial navigation and they did mm. use this uh, form of celestial navigation in the Apollo missions, although a little updated version, but it's still a precarious way. And that was really the moment when I started to question it. So when after that moment I had 20 years ago, I sort of pushed it aside for several years. And it wasn't until more interest came out with the advent of the uh, internet was increasing around that time. And a lot more information was coming out through that. And, you know, through YouTube channels and, um, mm. you know, Facebook and uh, all other online sources. And I think it was about five, maybe six years ago when I seriously jumped right into this with both feet and I started ordering uh, many books on the subject. And I want to add something here mm. that as much and all as the conspiracy books, if I can, if I can uh, put it that way for now, are important, I found a lot of my information that really threw doubt onto the Apollo missions came from the official narrative and it came from the books in support of the official narrative and it came from astronauts themselves and it came from you know scientists that were either directly connected to NASA or uh, indirectly connected to NASA and also involved in the scientific community so right. as much and all as the books and there's been some very good books written on it and I recommend all of them and I'll mention mm. a couple um, as we go on but it was really um, the official literature that really opened my eyes more to what was really going on back then. Cool. I mean, there has been a lot of strange behavior over the last several decades. Um, Buzz Aldrin, who was the second man to walk on the moon, um, Neil Armstrong, who was the first man to walk on the moon, all but walked away from it after the mission was over. And when he came back, <laughs> supposedly came back, um, he basically resigned his commission and went into seclusion. And um, he he taught university. I think he was a professor. But when he did came out, when he did come out to do uh, interviews, and remember, this is the first man that supposedly walked on the moon. Um, when he came out, it was usually once a year, maybe at best, maybe once every two years. And the interview was choreographed and carefully scripted. I mean, he had some really strict conditions upon that interview, and it just seemed like. He wanted to distance himself from it. So I just want to, I'm just saying to the readers that I'm, I'm not saying I subscribe to the theory that they were hypnotized, but it is definitely given what we know now, it is something that should, um, shouldn't be um, pushed aside. It, it needs to be looked at. Uh, President uh, John F. Kennedy in 1961, when he announced to you, uh, the U.S. Congress, and I think he further announced it to the uh, United Nations, that they were going to land a man on the moon and bring him safely back to Earth by the end of the decade. So they had less than eight years to design the technology that didn't exist. And they had at that point, they only had about uh, a total experience of about 15 minutes in space when he made that announcement in terms of manned missions. 
That was the first mission, uh, the Mercury mission. And so they had to develop all this technology and they had to gather all these minds together in a period of less than eight years. Now, to, to give you an example, to put that into perspective, um, NASA retired the space shuttle in 2011 and they're still having difficulty getting, um, well, it took them what, last year, I think, when they finally uh, sent the first manned mission and that wasn't even really NASA. That was with SpaceX. That was mm. with a private corporation. Um, so they they just went through uh, difficulty after difficulty in the last eight years. And um, when you compare it to what they supposedly had done, the accomplishments they had done between 1961 up to 1969, um, it really does raise a question. Now, I, I do want to mention that in my book, I, I talked specifically about the F1 engines of the Saturn V, and it's the Saturn V rocket. And if you like, I can speak a little bit more to mm. that because that's where the problems really, really mm. um, started. Yeah. So for the viewers that don't know, um, the listeners rather, um, the Saturn V rocket, of course, was used, it had to be the Saturn V rocket used to send man missions to the moon because the Saturn V rocket produced the power necessary. Now, there was actually two final versions of the Saturn rocket. There was the Saturn 1B, and then there was the Saturn V. Now, the Saturn 1B is a smaller version, less powerful than the Saturn V. The Saturn 1B was used, I believe, twice. It was used uh, once during the Apollo moon missions, and it didn't go to the moon. It was just in Earth orbit. And then there was one more, and it was used again to launch uh, crews to Skylab in the mid-1970s. And that's a subject for later. So... Um, keeping in mind that the Saturn 1V is not as powerful as the Saturn V, it's the Saturn V that I'll focus on here. Now, what I'll do is I'll give a little bit of a brief mm. description of the Saturn V rocket, and then I'll go into more details. So what the Saturn V rocket, uh, basically, it um, was about 360 feet. I might be, it might not be exact on the numbers here. I'm going from memory, so your mm. listeners can correct me. Yep. Um, so 360 feet tall, and it was a three-stage rocket. And so the first stage um, had the most powerful engines, which was the F1 engines. Now, I'm going to concentrate on the first stage of the Saturn V. And, of course, then you have the second stage and then the third stage. And, of course, up there, that's where the command module, lunar module was. All right. So we'll start with the first stage in the F1 engines. Now, the F1 engines had their start uh, in terms of its design and manufacture in the mid-1950s. And the military was actually working on this engine, and they're trying to build a very powerful engine. When um, President Eisenhower, um, in 1958, he signed a decree um, enacting NASA, the, at that point, NASA took control or was, was sent over to NASA to take control. And NASA um, contracted uh, Rocketdyne and Rocketdyne Corporation which is still in, in uh, existence today. And Rocketdyne took over the F1 engines and they were trying to perfect this engine. Now, this was a liquid fuel engine. And what they were trying to do was is to, to give your, um, again, people into perspective, the average rocket engine, you're looking at maybe 200,000 pounds of thrust per engine, okay? Um, with the, uh, and that's one engine. With the F1 engines, you're looking at 1.5 million pounds of thrust. This was a powerful engine. Now, there was five of these engines that were used in the first stage of the Saturn V. 
And the reason why there was five is because through their calculations in terms of um, launching the necessary hardware into low Earth orbit, that includes the command module, the service module, and the lunar module, which would be the actual lander. The lunar module is the lander that would mm. actually land on the moon. Um, it was about 46 to 50 tons. So they needed those five engines for a combined total of 7.5 million pounds of thrust just to get the rocket off the launch pad. And yes. now that, uh, that launch would last for two minutes in terms of the first stage when they would find when the engines would burn out and then they would jettison the first stage and then the second stage would take over. So the problems were with the F1 engines. If um, uh, um, if uh, I hope I I hope I've been clear on that so far. Okay, hold on. yeah. Okay, so what you're saying is that there was a huge amount of thrust required. Yeah, like an immense amount of thrust. Yes, it is by far the largest engine ever built before or after. It hasn't been in use since. It was discontinued. Um, shortly after the Apollo program ended. Now, the, hold on. Sorry, sorry, with, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. When when did they use that particular engine? Then only in '69. No. So the uh, the engine was first tested in an actual. Um, remember, the engine went through a lot of static testing. So uh, static right. testing on the ground. So it went through hours and hours of static testing. But they were having many, many, many problems with it. And before I get into when it was first used in the Saturn V. Yeah. Um, the problems that they were having were uh, called instability. And what was creating the instability with this powerful engine, right? I mean, you're talking 1.5 million thrust per engine. Um, the problems that they were having were related to the cooling system. So if I could just give a brief description mm. of the F1 engine, and I'll go from there. So when everybody looks at a rocket, you see the nozzle on the bottom. And then as you go up, there's the throat part, the narrow part. And then above the throat part is the combustion chamber. And above the combustion chamber is the fuel injector. So the base, and this is just basic rocket here, um, science here. Basically what happens is, is the propeller is pushed through the fuel injector, pushes it into the um, combustion chamber. And what happens in the combustion chamber is, is the, what is called a controlled explosion. And it's that controlled explosion that's pushed out through the throat area, through the nozzle, which gives the rocket its um, push off the pad. Now, for the, um, the F1 engines, what was happening was, is because this engine was so powerful, they had to find ways to continually cool the combustion chamber from the outside. So what they did was, is they ran hundreds of small, really small tubes on the outside of the combustion chamber, down through the throat area and out through the uh, nozzle. And what would happen is, is when the fuel injector um, pushed the fuel through, 70% of the propellant would go through the small tubes on the outside of the combustion chamber, while 30% of the propellant went through the combustion chamber. So when the combustion chamber went through its controlled explosion, the whole idea was is for the small tubes filled with propellant on the outside would absorb the thermal energy produced by the explosion to up to temperatures of about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then it would um, recircle that um, back into the engine. So they would use that fuel. That fuel would then be circulated into the combustion chamber. And it was a continuous process because if they didn't find a way 
to maintain the temperatures at some stability in the combustion chamber, you would have an explosion and a loss of the rocket. Okay, but and so that's far, that's, yeah, but that sounds reasonable so far. That doesn't sound yeah. outside of the realm of, of possibility or reality, or am I right? Wrong? Well, no, that's reasonable. You're right. I mean, it does sound reasonable. I mean, other rockets at that time are working the same way, but mm. what is interesting about this particular um, the H1 engine was working the same way. The H1 engine was used in the Saturn 1B, and that was a precursor, of course, to the um, the uh, Saturn 5 and the F1 engines. Now, the H1 engines used um, uh, power output. I think it was um, 208,000 pounds per thrust per engine, right? And they were using it. It was a liquid fuel engine, and they were using the same uh, the same basic um, format or same basic design. The problem was this. Mm. The problem is, is that the tubes outside of the combustion chamber that were used to send fuel, uh, fuel through to absorb the thermal energy were breaking down. And they were breaking down because of the, um, the not so much the design, but because of the material that, they were, that were used in the design. So as they were breaking down, the engine wasn't as efficient as it should have been. And of course, the power output was, was uh, far less than it should have been as well. And in a couple of, uh, many of the, uh, several of the stat, uh, static testing they've done, they've had full explosions of that due to that very process. So it was the cooling system that was breaking down that was causing the instability of the F1 engines. And I might yeah. add, that um, when that st instability happens, you're getting uneven firing of all five engines, and you can't have that because Ooh. once you have that, yeah, and once you have that, you have what is called um, uh, it sends a resonance frequency through the rocket, the longitudinal axis of the rocket, which causes an effect called pogo, which is a severe vibration of right. the yes. Um, yeah. So, 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 so what that you was the problem. yeah okay. So what you're saying is that the engines were firing in sort of inconsistently, inconsistently with, with regards to one another. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because I mean, it was obviously different for each engine, and you'd have some that might perform and some that didn't. Now, you asked earlier uh, when was it actually used, and this is where it gets very interesting because it was uh, they had um, two, just two on-man tests of the Saturn V. So that would be a, what is called an all-up test, all test of the Saturn V, where all the components were in place. Now, they've had gone through years of testing with different components of this rocket, but this was the actual first time that all the components were put together to see how it would perform in actual conditions of flight. And that's important because it's one thing doing static testing of the engines, but you still have to test it in actual conditions of flight. Because remember, um, the F1 engines were used up to an altitude of 42 miles. So they still had to deal with the actual forces an airplane would have to deal with. All right, it's different from being in low Earth orbit when you're in a vacuum space, when you don't have to deal with as many forces you'd have to deal with on the ground. Right. So. It was imperative that they did as much testing of this rocket as possible in actual conditions. So, the first flight, which was Apollo 4, and I believe it was in 1967, um, was the first time that they launched a Saturn V, an unmanned Saturn V. Now, apparently, that flight went flawlessly, and at first appearance, it appears to that, that appears to be correct. But it was the second flight, the second unmanned flight, Apollo 6, 
and Apollo 5 was a launch of an Apollo rocket, or Saturn rocket, but it was the Saturn 1B. So people might get a little bit confused. It was actually Apollo 4 was the first Saturn 5 unmanned launch. Apollo 6 was the second um, Saturn 5 unmanned launch. And that's when they really experienced the problems. And it tells me that they weren't really being truthful about in terms mm. of the first launch of Apollo 4. Because they had, if there had been a crew on board Apollo 6, the second unmanned launch, the crew probably would have been killed if they um, or would have to would have to abort the mission immediately. In Apollo one, um, um, after the fact, um, they were actually supposed to be the first crew to launch into low Earth orbit. And I think they're also supposed to be the first crew to land on the moon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that was Apollo one, and that was actually um, a simulation on the ground. They didn't launch. And that right. was actually a simulation. Yeah, that was a simulation. And what happened with that is, and I wrote about that in the book, is they were in this capsule for several hours. They were going through their procedures, so on and so forth, and they were having numerous problems. Um, I think uh, Gus Grissom, who was the commander of that uh, particular uh, mission, is famous for um, saying that um, you know the communications were breaking down. They were having all kinds of problems. And shortly before he died, along with the other two astronauts, um, it was recorded, and this got out, that he, he was just, he was getting a little fed up. He was just getting a little fed up with all the problems. And he had remarked to uh, Mission Control, is, we can't communicate between two buildings. How are we supposed to go to the moon? Right? So he was actually revealing um, some of the problems, a lot of the problems, actually, that were um, they were having in the Apollo program as a whole. And in fact, I think it was a couple of weeks before that uh, tragedy um, where he and uh, the two astronauts were basically incinerated. Um, I'll get to that in a second. Um, he had hung a lemon on the side of the command module in front of a press, uh, press conference. And basically his message was is that this is a lemon and it isn't going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like they really did want to go to the moon and there wasn't some sort of plan to fake the entire thing. It sounds like they were really trying to figure out a way to get to the moon. I think I think that's partly correct. I do think that the insiders knew um that they weren't going anywhere. I mean, I think they knew as early and I talk about this actually in part 2 of my series that I, I believe they knew as early as 1963 that they were not really going to be able to get to the moon. But you see, uh, this gets back into PSYOPs because Kennedy had made that pledge. And I think Kennedy, I'm not sure if Kennedy, um, there's, there's evidence too that, that Kennedy tried to back out of this. And he was making speeches shortly before he was assassinated uh, that he would like to work more closely with the Soviets. And I mean, that's code for abandoning their own um, goals, or at least going on. Uh, I think he was basically indicating that we just can't do this alone. So, um, yeah, you're partly right. Um, and there are others that actually really did believe it. But I believe Gus Grissom had some idea that this was just not going to happen. He said they were at least 10, 15 years away, if that. Mm. at that time. Um, I mentioned the second on-man test yeah. of the Saturn V. Now, that was with Apollo 6. Now, that was a near disaster. And um, so they had to quickly find out what was going on. Now, from what I've been able to understand, and 
uh, the research that I've done, NASA came up with pretty well every excuse in the book except the obvious one, which is the elephant in the room, which is the F1 engines, the instability of the F1 engines. So what NASA did was is they formed a commission um, basically investigating themselves, and they determined that um, the problem um, with the instability could be easily fixed, you know, through this and through that. I'm not going to go through all of it now. It's pretty in-depth. But the, the real red flag for me was is that they fixed the problem with the F1 engines and then seven months later went straight to another Saturn V launch, but this time it was a manned launch. Now, there was absolutely in between no further testing of the F1 engines with the updated technology and the repairs that were supposedly made to the F1 engines. They just put a crew on board and then sent that rocket up. Yeah, and that, sound, that, that sounds reckless. And that sounds very that, reckless. That is reckless. So when I say to people, when people say, oh, yeah, but it had lots of testing, and I point out that the actual F1 engines had about 70, I think it was over 70 hours of total testing. And now yeah. that does sound reasonable. That for, in terms of static testing, that does sound reasonable. But you have to have a comparable amount of flight testing to go with it. Yeah. And with the Saturn V and the F1 engines, the actual flight testing before they put a man on board, a man crew on board rather, was a total of four minutes. Good heavens. Yeah. And that, by the way, um, that was Apollo 8 that they launched. Uh, Apollo 7 was actually a Saturn 1B launch, so it was not a Saturn 5. So they went straight to the next mission, which was Apollo 8, seven months later. And his question is to whether they could have resolved those problems within seven months. But nonetheless, just going by the official narrative here, they went to um, eight mo uh, seven months later with Apollo 8, and that was not only the first manned mission using the Saturn 5 rocket, and, and keep this point in mind because it's very, it's, very, it's very interesting. It was also the first manned mission to leave low Earth orbit and circumnavigate the moon. They didn't land on the moon, but they circumnavigated the moon and came back. So there was a lot of first for a rocket that was basically not tested at all. What does low Earth orbit mean? Is the moon not in low Earth orbit? Yeah, so while well, the moon is in orbit, technically the uh, moon is in orbit, and low Earth orbit is about 110 miles up. The moon is 240,000 miles out. Okay. So um, that's a very good question, actually. Um, so you, you're getting into all kinds of areas like escape, escape velocity. So you need to reach a, a speed of approximately 17, 18,000 miles per hour. No, I'm sorry. I'm back in my miles per hour here, if you don't mind. Yeah. So you have to reach um, 17,000, 18,000 miles per hour to maintain low Earth orbit. And of course, that also depends on low Earth orbit. I'm defining as between 100 and 120 miles altitude. So the further out your, uh, the further up you go, those speeds, of course, will change. But to when you're um, leaving low Earth orbit to orbit uh, to circumnavigate the moon, you're not really escaping Earth's gravity. You're actually going into a higher orbit. So they're going into so instead of reaching 25,000 miles per hour would be escape velocity. They're under, they, they, they um, supposedly, again, according to the official narrative, they um, blasted out of low Earth orbit less than 20, just under 25,000 miles per hour, and they went into what is called an elliptical orbit. So you're, you're absolutely right, actually, uh, Jeremy, is to say that, you know, um, I think you're intuitively right on this, is that they didn't actually leave Earth's gravity. They went into a higher orbit, which included the moon. 
So they were in a, a very elliptical orbit, if I can put it that way. Now, when they got to the moon, of course, then they had to change that elliptical orbit into a lunar orbit. So they would have to, you know, um, um, slow down their speed to get into the proper orbit. That's a whole that's a whole different area. But that's basically the, the concept. Uh, I'm so, getting... And, that's, and that's, that's a very good point, because the Soviets were further ahead in everything in terms of their technology and putting women in space at that time in the 1960s. Um, but there was uh, the lunar lander is a whole different story, and I actually get into that in more detail in my second book, because um, I, 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 I sort of go through it chronologically from book one to book two, and that's actually in the second book. But to, to briefly touch on the uh, lunar module, they had uh, built vehicles, uh, lunar training vehicles, on uh, to use on the Earth to simulate that could simulate lunar gravity. And, you know, um, that, that, that was basically turned out to be an almost disaster. I mm -hmm. mean, it just didn't function. I mean, the astronauts spent more time trying to maintain stability of that training vehicle than stimulating um, lunar gravity. And that's a whole different area. Maybe we could talk about that again. Mm, but yeah. um, in terms of the actual uh, space flight, there was um, uh, two full um, missions of involving the lunar module, but they didn't land. So you had Apollo, uh, I believe it was Apollo 9. Yes, Apollo 9 was the first fully manned um, test of lunar module, only in low Earth orbit. It didn't go any further than that. And then Apollo 10 was the second manned mission, and that actually went to the moon and they uh, separated from the command module and descended down to within 50,000 feet of the lunar surface and then aborted and then uh, went back up to join with the mothership, if I can put it that way. But it didn't land either. The actual first landing, according to the official narrative, of a lunar module was with Apollo 11, and that was with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. So, yes, in terms of testing, there was minimal testing, which is a, which is a prevailing theme within the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. And I go through that in depth in both um, both book one and book two. But they did go to the moon then with Apollo 10. They just didn't land. Yeah, they didn't land. And, uh, yeah, they, they – well, yeah, we saw it on TV, right? So they, they went to the uh, – to to, So yeah. did they actually then go to the moon or did they just orbit Earth? No, I don't believe they did. I don't believe they left low orbit. And in fact, I'll be honest with you, I have doubts that even um, most of those missions even made it. Uh, were if they made it to low Earth orbit, I, don't, I have a I have my doubts as to whether they were manned or not. And I have to do a little bit more research on that. But there seems to be now um, evidence evolving, pointing out uh, revealed. Um, well. I, I can't say for sure, but I'm having my suspicions that they even went to low Earth orbit. But that's, again, a different area. I'm going to be writing more about that in a third book, but I'm going to look more into that. I have my own theories as to what the Saturn V program is really all about, um, but I don't think many of them involved a crew. If I, That's um, interesting. You know, okay. Yeah, okay, well, that, that's that's another, another yeah. topic, but that's basically where I'm going with this. Apollo 11. The rocket, the rocket launched. Everybody watched it. Yep. Right, and it had the the crew on board, the three astronauts. Uh, everything, everything legit so far. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there was a rocket that blasted off that day. I mean, there's there's no denying that there was enough people there to witness that rocket mm -hmm. blasting off. 
um, you know, and, you know, uh, enough witnesses outside of the mainstream media at the time that mm. witnessed it, something did go up and it was the Saturn V rocket. Now, whether the Saturn V rocket was using the F1 engines or whether it was a stripped down empty version of the Saturn V rocket is another matter. Just because Ooh. you saw, just because you saw a Saturn V rocket going up, you didn't see what was inside of it. And there was um, an individual who worked at Rocket Nine Corporation and he was uh, reading, his, his job was to analyze the data from the F-1 engines back in the 1950s to early 1960s. Um, his name was Bill Casing. Bill Casing actually um, resigned in 1963 in disgust uh, when he saw that they were falsifying data for the actual power output of the F-1 engines. And he was the first to write a book about this um, NASA's, I think it was called NASA's $30 billion um, scandal. Um, he wrote about this and released his book. He actually self-published it in 1977. Um, nobody was, uh, publishers were afraid to go near it at that time. And he was the first one to actually reveal um, some of the uh, shenanigans that were going on yes. surrounding this one engine. It sounds as if you're saying it's not known if the astronauts were actually on board that rocket. That's right. And I mean, uh, you know, there are, um, I mean, and I told you, it's just, uh, as I said earlier, sorry, it was a theory. And but there's another theory that I'm sort of leaning towards as well, that they were really actually trying to get something out of the F1 engines. And they may have eventually succeeded with the last mission. Now, they had 11, 12 launches of the Saturn V within the Apollo program. And the last launch actually was outside of the Saturn V was outside of the Apollo program, and that was to launch Skylab, the space station they launched in 1973. And um, they may have eventually gotten something out of, because I, I want to make this mm. point. In, in 1959, Rocketdyne Corporation recorded um, that they were able to get a million pounds per engine. They were for a, for a millisecond. They weren't able to sustain it, but they were able to reach get that. So I'm giving Rocketdyne Corporation the benefit of the doubt here that they were able to get at least a million. And you can maybe sort of rely on that technology, but uh, that data. But you also have to take Bill Casing's um, uh, point into account here because he was questioning that as well. Mm. But if you were going to look at real data, your your reference point would be 1959 because during the 1960s when they were launching the F1 engines with the Apollo program all of that telemetry data was destroyed <laughs> so uh, you really cannot you have to rely on NASA being truthful and honest and we sort of know where that's going now but all that inf all that information is, is they, they say it's printed out but the other thing that, that people have to remember is that they had the capability of running computer programs on the Apollo missions back in the 1960s, and they were running many of those computer programs. So you're not really sure if you're looking at a computer program or actual data from the telemetry tapes that was destroyed. Yeah. And there's nothing to back up that data. Yeah. Let's quickly jump across to the other side of the world. Now, what was going on um, in Soviet Russia? Because they were obviously trying to do the same thing. Yes. And this is now, where this is now where the, yeah. the where the conspiracy theory, because we're going to call it that. Um, yes. That's where this supposedly falls apart. Because if the U.S. didn't actually go to the the moon with humans, the Soviets right. would have been all over it. We think. Um, there's evidence now, and I wrote about this in my second book, that the Soviets knew 
um, as early as the mid-1960s that that F1 engine was not performing the way it should. I think they had information and data that that engine was not going to perform. They knew they knew before the first launch that they were they were not going anywhere. And I want to bring up another interesting point about this. The little bit that I have looked into in terms of the Soviet space program, they had their own manned space program. Of course, they were working on, and one of the ships that they had designed was part of the Zond program. And in 1968, the Soviets had sent their, which was capable of carrying, I think, one or two astronauts, cosmonauts. And they sent um, one of their Zond spacecraft to the moon and back with, um, um, they, and they had put on mammals uh, on board, so including turtles. <laughs> and when they came back, when that ship came back, um, and they looked inside, they said, well, all the mammals and the turtles survived the radiation and there was no problem and so on and so forth. What a lot of people don't understand is, is that tortoises and turtles and, and other small mammals can withstand thousands of times more radiation levels than humans can. So that's really not, that doesn't really confirm anything. But there was a very interesting thing that came out, and I did put this in the book, and I also made sure when I put it in the book, I can't confirm it. Uh, so I don't want to mislead anybody here. Um, but there was rumors that a cosmonaut was put on board and that when they opened it up, when they opened the, the ship up, he wasn't there. Uh, he was basically vaporized. Um, I, again, I haven't been able to substantiate that. So that is sort of a rumor. So I want to put that in the rumor category. But I can substantiate this is when um, they um, looked inside and were checking the turtles to see what radiation doses they had received, the, um, the Soviet space program was abruptly stopped in terms of its manned missions to the moon. That's a fact. Okay, that's interesting. But, yeah. but if America didn't get to the moon, surely the Soviets would have used this as, as a political weapon. Well, you know, that, that's, that's a point of view that some people have. That's not a point of view that I have. Um, I know for um, if, if I had something on my enemy, if I can put it that way, I'm a country and I have something on my enemy, why would I want to disclose it right away? Why would I want to put all my cards on the table? Why wouldn't I use that as leverage? And I think that a lot of that was going on. I mean, we don't really know. I mean, one thing to point out is, is that the Soviets and the Americans were constantly signing um, free trade agreements between each other. And we're, we're not privy to 90% of what those free trade agreements are all about. So how do we know that that wasn't used as leverage? And also, and this is very important, that, um, and I don't want to get into this right now because this is another full hour, but uh, I, well, I will mention it. The... Um, Soviet uh, Apollo after the Apollo 13 launch there was an Apollo capsule found floating off the coast I believe France the next day and the question is how did that Apollo capsule get there and um, what is fact is that this was reported in the US Stars and Stripes as reported in a lot of the American local media and five months later and this is reported as well the Soviets officially handed back that command module to a U.S. Coast Guard. So that is fact. And um, just going by that alone is indicative that the Soviets knew a lot more than uh, most people knew at the time. 
and that they were keeping quiet. And in fact, they may have actually been cooperating in some at some level with the American government. I just I, I say to people that, uh, and we just mentioned earlier that the, um, the Americans or NASA claims that they lost the telemetry, telemetry tapes for the Apollo missions. Now, that, I just want to briefly talk about that because that leads into a very interesting question. Um, when you uh, that came out in 2009, that story broke through Reuters in 2009. Now, what happened was um, Director Ron Howard was talking about. Uh, he made uh, well. He made. He famously remember he made the Apollo 13 movie, and in the Apollo 13 movie, he depicted. It was more theatrics than anything else. I was talking about. I remember at the very beginning. I was talking about keeping Earth within a grid pattern in the window. Yes. Well, he actually did that. That's not exactly what happened, but that's a new point right now. Um, he wanted to honor the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11, and so he asked NASA for the telemetry tape so he could take the uh, live visual feed off the telemetry tapes and make an IMAX film out of it. And he was politely informed that they have disappeared. And that was 14,000 reels of telemetry tapes that had disappeared. Yeah. So we had to resort to using VHS, um, old VHS tapes at that time to make his 40th anniversary commemorating the, of course, 40th anniversary of uh, Apollo 11. Now, it turns out that, that all of the telemetry tapes for all of the Apollo missions have gone missing. We're talking now 140,000 reels of telemetry tapes. Now, for the people listening, this was not digital. This was analog. This was all on tapes, and each telemetry tape is the size of a car steering wheel. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss. I think NASA's at a loss to come out and explain how you managed to lose 140,000 reels of telemetry tapes <laughs> that were actually kept under lock and key at the Washington National Records Center. That's where they disappeared from. You're telling me that the Soviets were tracking these missions. Obviously, if they were, uh, they had the capability, they had the same capabilities in the Americans at that time. So they would have been tracking these missions. So they would have been um, recording these missions on their own telemetry tapes for their own reasons, for if anything, to analyze it. And I haven't seen in the last 10 years them offering those tapes to mm. NASA. So that tells me that uh, the whole thing was a deception. The Soviets don't have any information on that. And they knew full well that these missions did not happen. So the Apollo 11 rocket, it, it launched. And let's just, yeah. pretend, let's just pretend for a second that uh, the astronauts were on board. Okay. Yeah. That it launched and everybody saw it. You saw the footage in the beginning of our of our conversation. It went up into the sky. Uh, people all over the world uh, saw it. Um, then what happened? It exited. It exited Earth. Um, okay, you're talking about which mission specifically? Eleven. Now the one that are went to the moon. Are, are, so you're talking officially, or you're talking like what I think happened? Uh, well, officially, and then what you're saying happened. Well, officially, okay, so officially, uh, Apollo 11 launched, and they did, I think, uh, they went into low Earth orbit, right? Uh, actually, parking orbit, it gets a little technical here, going parking orbit, been corrected that a few times, was well, not low Earth, there's not much difference between parking orbit and low Earth orbit for people listening, but anyway, we'll just call it low Earth, or, low Earth orbit. So they went into uh, LEO, and uh, I think it was for two orbits, and um, then they blasted out of Earth orbit 
to propel themselves to the moon. So that's the official narrative. Um, I'm not sure that there was even a crew on board. And I know people have asked me, well, what about all the film we see of the astronauts in weightlessness? Well, they can duplicate that very easily in um, aircraft. And they've done been doing it for years. And that's how they train astronauts to start out with. And for people who are saying, well, how did they do that? How did they duplicate that in a command module? Well, I found out information, and I put this in my second book, that they actually built the cockpit of a lunar module, the flight deck of a lunar module, into the base floor of a U.S. aircraft to simulate lunar gravity. So there's no reason to believe that they didn't do the same thing with the command module to simulate lunar gravity. And I think it lasts for about 30 seconds at a time. And, and they think it easily experted this and I haven't looked too much, but I'm just yeah, putting this out there as an idea that um, it's very easy to, um, you know, film those um, 30, seg 30 second segments and then put it together. I mean, it can be done. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that the US military had by far the largest um, recording studios in the world, even more so than Hollywood. So they were capable of doing anything. Yeah, and I'm going to refer now to a couple yes. of other researchers. I, I, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. I stayed away in my first book from the uh, photographic and film record of that because a lot of other researchers have been doing that. Mm. And they've done a very, very good job at doing it too, at revealing a lot of the anomalies. I wanted to focus more on the technology. But I, I was asked to talk a little bit about that in my second book, so I did. And there's three individuals actually that I would highly recommend because they do a lot of work on the film and photographic record. The first one is Marcus Allen. Uh, Marcus Allen is the UK distributor for Nexus magazine. And he's been researching... Um, the Apollo moon mission hoax for the last 25 years. He's done some amazing work. I talk about him in my book. The other person is Scott Henderson. Scott Henderson is actually here in Canada, not too far from where I am. And what he's done is he has spent the last 10 years downloading the complete record, NASA's record on the photographs and film. And he's done a lot of work exposing that. And very interesting um, that he's done that because when he comes up and he presents an anomaly, the, the pictures get airbrushed out, if I can, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. So NASA kind of has the habit of updating his photos. Right. And then there's Robert Williams. Robert Williams is also, and this is a very important point, he's done a lot of work um, through his YouTube channel. I can send you that link later. Please do. But he did something very interesting. I talk about all three of these in my uh, individuals in my second book. Um, he talks about how would film actually perform in the vacuum of space. And what a lot of people don't know is, is that there's a difference between the vacuum we can duplicate here on Earth when we're training astronauts compared to the actual vacuum you get on the lunar surface. And that um, actual vacuum can have an effect on materials that are used in space. Um, a lot of materials like metal, spacecraft, film, because um, remember, we weren't mm. using digital technology back then. It was all done on film. So was film actually able to um, perform as well, as well as it supposedly did? And that's another question. And he does some really good work on that. If man didn't walk on the moon, 
What is the closest man has been to the moon? Um, two hundred miles from Earth. So where the where the uh, space station is? Yeah, yeah. But is but is it is it a, a stretch to say that they've sent probes to the moon? Unmanned missions. Unmanned. Yes, I would say. Yeah, I would say unmanned missions. Um, even that. I mean, and that's a very good point you brought up too. You look at the failure rate of unmanned missions. You have a failure rate of almost fifty percent in the sure. last several decades when it comes to unmanned missions. But lo and behold, and I'm not talking about the Apollo One tragedy, and that was a tragedy. Um, I'm talking about the actual missions that have flown in space, according to NASA, excluding Apollo 13. Even with its accident, its so-called accident, it came back safely. So the goal had changed from getting uh, landing on the moon to coming back safely. So in other words, it was a success. And they're virtually talking 100% success with, a man, with manned missions, which incredibly, uh, is anybody with any common sense would know this, are more complex in nature and more things right. will go wrong right yes so um that's that's just a little thing that i always you know throw back at people say well you know consider this randy if if it is true that they they stopped all the apollo missions after 1972 why has no other nation or country ever attempted to go to the moon yeah, and that's an, another excellent question. And I've heard many excuses for that. I have a lot of people, I have a few people, I call them shows, they've been trolling me for the last couple of years. And they always try to, to hit me with that question. And one of the questions, one of the answers that they always come up with is because of lack of funding. And that is, that's a fallacy. Because mm. um, if you look at back at when they funded the Apollo missions, they spent equivalent to today's value about $150, $160 billion yeah. on the missions. NASA is still getting half of what it got back in the 1960s per year. So it is still getting $20 billion a year. And they're putting a lot of that funding into on-man missions. And NASA has more than enough resources to at least have a viable manned mission capable of launching from launch to low Earth orbit and back. But that seems to have fallen by the wayside. Mm. And from all practical purposes, NASA seems to be out of demand, um, um, out of the manned mission business, if I can put it that way. I mean, all this talk about going back to the moon, we never went in the with, first place. Yeah, with but Elon. It's really, yeah, it's really, you know, um, you're not going to be able to do it at a private company. You're going to need full resources of a government to actually do this. And I'm just talking about one mission. But now they're talking about we've been to the moon, let's go to Mars. But if you look back in the last 40 years, you've heard this many times. We're going to go to the moon. In 1980, I heard this. We're going to go to the moon in five years. Of course, that never happened. 1990, oh, yeah, we're going to go to the moon by the year 2000. That come, that come and goes. And the latest one was really incredible. Uh, 2015, they said, well, we're going to go back to the moon, and then a year later, said, well, no, we're not going to go to the moon. We're going to skip the moon because we've already been there. We'll just go to Mars, and that'll just cost us $65 million. I mean, even the general public who are not um, attuned to this kind of information or pay much attention laughed at that, and that didn't last very long. That narrative didn't last very long as well. Now, um, Donald Trump had um, uh, told NASA to, to uh, plan a moon landing for 2024. Now, that's very interesting because I find Donald Trump very, um, I find him very, I find him interesting, and I'll mention this because he's basically, I got the impression he was basically taunting NASA. He said, well, you did it before, do it again. 
And right now they haven't even tested any of the equipment necessary. They don't even have a design for a lunar lander. So, um, I don't know yes. if you can hear, but there's a bird just outside my window here and it's really annoying. It's making some crazy noise. <laughs> I hope it's not coming through the microphone. People should not be shy about looking into this. Anybody with, uh, I think Dr. Kaufman said this, anybody with, um, when it comes to researching you know anything of this nature with uh, with average or above average intelligence can 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 you know dive into this and and really deal with this stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm not particularly interested in, interested in credentials um, because yeah. because that's that's often a false logical leap anyway. Because you can have you can have the best credentials in the world and your name could be Fauci. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Good. everybody yeah, listening, Randy. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you have a great Friday evening. I, I I I will, and I just want to thank you for inviting me. I actually I very much enjoyed this uh, interview, and I look forward to uh, discussing this with you again soon. My name is Jim. Yep. This is Jim Wolfe, Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com. 